Hi, this is Andrew, and welcome to the Aspiring Thinkers podcast. And uh, today we're doing something a little bit different. Um, we're having on a panel of guests. Um, and those are uh, Angel Eduardo, uh, Jeff, and Deb. Um, and uh, if you're interested in following them and learning more about them, uh, you can uh, find them on Twitter, and I'll be sure to post links in the description. But um, why don't you all go ahead and uh, introduce yourselves, starting with you, Angel. Yeah, Angel Eduardo. I'm a writer, musician, a bunch of other creative stuff. I can't stop making things and forcing people to uh, at least look at them. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I'm here. I guess I'm, the reason I'm here is the reason I'm invited is because we we talk a lot on Twitter about how to have conversations, how to have more productive disagreements, how to break through to the other side that may or may not be amenable to our point of view and how to deal with ideas that we think are pernicious. So that's why I'm here. I'm doing my best to uh, do good and be good. And that's my deal. Okay. How about you, Jeff? Dang, that's a tough act to follow. We have an angel and a demon. I think I'm here to uh, learn what angel just described. Um, I'm much like Deb was talking about earlier. I get very passionate when about my principles and values so I can, um, I'm taking nonviolent communication. So that sounds a lot like what in line with what Angel was describing. So I'm here to try to get better at my own communication. I am part of, I do peer support for counterweight. I'm part of critical therapy antidote and I have my own community with a few other people called new world chaos. We have a discord and a podcast on YouTube. So that's my, uh, online life right now. And I'm wondering, wondering me demon on Twitter. At Primal that's way better than I did. I forgot to mention a bunch of stuff. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll post links. <laughs> Alrighty. You're up Deb. Okay, so my name is De actually Deb Philman, and I am the host of the Reason We Learn um, YouTube channel. And I'm Insomnichick on Twitter, and I know they should match, but they don't. Um, and so I am a former teacher. I'm a homeschool mom. I'm a mother of three, um, and I have been watching the sort of downward slide of education in America for about 30 years. I graduated from University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education in 1990, and I saw it starting then. So I'm, I've am i been really sad to be right all these years. I kept making predictions. They kept coming true, which was really, really unfortunate. I'd much rather be wrong. Um, but I spend most of my time trying to educate parents about what's going on inside schools, what the curriculum it really means be underneath a lot of word salad, uh, try to translate to layman's terms. I try to empower them to educate their own kids, whether they're still physically going to the building or coming home for homeschool or going to some other model. My focus is on helping the children by helping the parents, if that makes sense. Um, and so I have, perspective on communication with, I guess, as you put it, you know, people who disagree or with my ideas, whatever, um, that is informed by my concern for families, for kids, for education in general. And um, 
the culture at large, I guess you would say. So today I was hoping to talk with you all about um, wokeness and uh, wokeness, social, social justice, and uh, critical race theory. Um, how do we deal with those ideas? How do we fight with them? Is there any merit to those ideas? Um, and what what sort of strategies should we be adopting to uh, to deal with those ideas? Um, so if anybody wants to go first, um, I sort of wanted to start with the basics and ask, what do you see? What do you think of uh, wokeness in general? I think it's, I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. I think it has started to, I think it has taken on um, the characteristics of a cult. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, looking at how um, cults operate in terms of how people are drawn into them, how um, people are sort of separated from any different opinions, different ideas, especially loved ones, family, former friends, connections, how there's a sort of intermittent reinforcement process that goes on, you know, like love bombing. And then there's a little bit of devaluation. And then there's, you know, you know, here you can earn your way back into our good graces if you do these things and do the work and that sort of stuff. So I think at, the, at its worst, if you're looking like on a continuum, at its worst is sort of cult-like. There doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of um, uh, grace anywhere in there, you know, for people to make mistakes or to have had, whether it's in the past or even right now to like trip up and say something wrong or not agree. Like, well, I agree with 80% of what you're saying, but this other 20% I'm a little sketchy on. I got to do a little more research. I don't feel like there's any room for that. And that to me is more characteristic of a, of a cult-like ideology or belief system than um, let's say a, you know, political ideology or, um, or even a religion, you know, religion, even religions, most religions have some form of, um, what's the word? I'm not a religious person, so I can't remember what it is, but where you, um, where you can redemption, redemption is the word, you know, there, there it seems like redemption is always out there. Like it's not going to come. It's almost Calvinistic in that way. And so I don't find it to be particularly healthy. Um, what makes it hard for me to push against it or against some of the ideas that one would call woke is that there are little kernels of truth in some of the originating ideas. So for example, I think we can all agree that racism has been a problem in America. I mean, I think racism has been a problem in a lot of places, but in particular, obviously in our history, it, anyone would be lying to say that racism is completely gone, right? So we have that. I think it would also be, you know, it's also fairly obvious that there are dis disparities in achievement and outcomes that are that correlate with race in America. So that's the thing we can sort of look at and see, and everyone can see it. You'd almost have to be blind not to see it, and that makes it difficult because what people who are woke will say is, "Well, you don't want to fix this." It's almost like a, um, you know, it's a straw man kind of argument. And you find yourself in the defensive right away, which most people are not very good at. Um, and what I try to do, at least when I'm dealing with someone I think is coming to me in good faith 
for example, someone who's not completely woke, like if they're not calling me evil and a Nazi, if they're just saying, well, don't you, don't you want to, you know, fight racism? Aren't you concerned? You know, in that sort of tone, then I might ask questions. I might start with, well, absolutely. Can you explain to me how you think this approach will do that? So I kind of pass the ball back to them and give them the opportunity to explain to me how, for example, using critical pedagogy, which is what we would call it in school, we wouldn't call it teaching critical race theory. That would be almost ridiculous. It's theory that came out of law school, right? You're not going to teach kindergartners critical race theory, but you might use critical praxis. You might use the ideas of racial essentialism that white people are oppressors and black people are uh, you know, the oppressed and that carries with the power that is with you even when you're born because of your skin, all these things. Um, and it's, it's a little bit, you know, it's sort of neo-Marxist and those ideas, but I might ask that person without throwing words like Marxism at them minute one, without, you know, judging, just say, okay, I want to hear why you believe this is the answer. And then I'll go by their answer. So if their answer has something that makes a kernel of sense, you know, like, well, I think we should be aware of the past and we should know the true history. Like I do too. We have common ground, 100%. Can you tell me where we aren't teaching that? And very often they can't. That's a misapprehension of reality. Okay. Cause it's, I learned about Tulsa. Okay. So I just kind of keep going at that way. If the person's in good faith, when the conversation ends with you're just a Nazi, you just, you just want to perpetuate your white privilege. You just want this, you just want that and keeps going down that path. So no matter what questions I ask, I get laughter, I get Kafka traps, you know, see, this proves you're a racist, you're in denial, that kind of thing. Then I disengage. I'm not the type of person immediately, um, certainly in person who's going to, you know, name call or anything. I just disengage. And I say, well, I'm really sorry you feel that way. We're probably not going to see eye to eye, um, see ya or whatever, you know, online, I'm going to be different as most of us are. And online, I might do what James does to be perfectly honest with you, which is either totally disappear, you know, just like not, not respond at all, or maybe do like a clown or just, or do something like, okay, <laughs> you know, like leave it at that, like, which is to me a little bit dismissive, I guess, but I feel like, and I know this is controversial, but I feel like the amount of attention and, and headspace I give to people who've decided not to listen, they've made a conscious decision that this is where they stand. This is the ground they're going to occupy and defend. And they're not interested in a conversation, they're not even coming in good faith. Um, if I give too much attention to that, they're getting something from me. If I keep trying to work with that person, they're drawing energy that I could be using with somebody who isn't coming in good faith or people who just already agree and are busy working, like actually doing work on the ground, grassroots to fix things for children. So I tend to just push that off. I learned that because I happen to be personally a survivor of narcissistic abuse. And I do see a common thread there too, that there's, there's sort of woke, but there's a high correlation within the woke um, speakers, thinkers, you know, people on Twitter, the, the, the most um, prolific producers of commentary that is, I, I can't, I'm not going to diagnose people as narcissists, but that's really narcissistic. Let's put it that way. 
they have a lot of the same traits as people I've known who have been you know, narcissistic abusers. And what I learned from the experience of going through that is for your own mental health and for the mental health of those who care about you and other people that you're working with to try to do good things, you must disengage. Like you, it's, it's called going no contact or you can do something called gray rock, which is if you must deal with them, like you have no choice, it's your boss, it's your, you know, your best friend's wife or something, you know, like then you can kind of go gray rock where you just are stoic and you don't really respond. Okay. Um, I don't believe in being mean. I don't believe in being mean, like calling people names back, but I do think a little bit of lighthearted humor or ridicule can go a long way. And I know you wanted to say something, so I'll stop. <laughs> oh, no, you're fine. Um, I wanted to give everybody a chance to, uh, to sort of share their, their perception of wokeness and, and what it is and what the problems are. Sorry, um, but I, I kind of went too I, far. <laughs> No, no, I, th- I think you, you set us up on a, on a great start and everybody kind of knows, you know, exactly where we're going now. But uh, Jeff or Angel, you can rock, paper, scissors for it if you want. I, I, I won't take long. I think it's superficial. I think it's shallow. I think it's reductive. I, I think it's intellectually inferior than other ways of thinking and looking at the world. And so most of my opposition to wokeness is is an intellectual or a rational opposition on it as a rational system. It's also divisive. I've lost friends. I hear stories all week long of people that lose jobs. They lose friendships. They get exiled from their communities over not agreeing or, or, or not even that. Like the woke will find reasons to do that to people that they you can't even see coming or anticipate. So I, it, it gives reason. It gives people a reason to treat each other more cruelly than I think they ordinarily would, and it's divisive. I'm watching it tear communities and relationships apart. So I think it's stupid, and I think it's divisive. All righty. You're up, Angel. Well, I mean, it's funny because I, I agree with Deb pretty much 100% of what she said. Um, I don't know if I would call it a cult. I think the thing that in my mind distinguishes a cult is this kind of isolationist sort of behavior, you know, they want to kind of go off into their little corner and just be in a bubble and not let anybody in or out. Um, and it strikes me more as, as at least analogous to, if not almost completely religion, you know, it's, you know, I grew up, I was raised Catholic. I'm very familiar with the whole thing. And I mean, Catholicism doesn't necessarily have a redemption aspect to it either it kind of it kind of makes the promises you know it's well at the other side of the thing you know called death that's where the redemption actually ends up um but up until that point you kind of need to grovel and you kind of need to feel guilty all the time and you kind of need to beg for forgiveness for being created you know as uh christopher hitchens said you know born sick and then commanded to be well um there's a lot of parallels and there's a lot for me of you know what we call woke behavior that only makes sense that only seems rational to me if you look at it under this kind of you know framework of a religion where there are certain tenets there are certain kind of you know original sin type truths that must be accepted there are certain truths about the way that the world works that must be accepted that cannot be challenged and 
everything, all the all the beliefs and behaviors that follow kind of build upon those things. Um, and you know that behave that those things are you know things like white supremacy is kind of deeply ingrained in the fabric of our country of our systems and you know the you know the thing that deb said there are there are kernels of truth to all of these things obviously racism is a, a, a huge systematic enterprise in our country um and that is going to have reverberating effects through history um up until the present day right we're still going to see the echoes of it and we're still going to see manifestations of it not the same obviously but there's still stuff going on and it can be traced back to that. So, you know, there's, there's a lot going on. I feel like it's part of the problem is that it's this kind of spaghetti ball of all these different um, ideas and intentions and motivations and desires just, you know, all thrown together. They're all tangled together and it's really difficult to pull them apart. Uh, and you know, I I myself hesitate to use words like woke. I I don't I don't want to characterize people with these labels because then I think you know, in both directions, I think there's a kind of crawling into the chalk outline of whatever the thing is. Uh, you know, they become the thing that I'm calling them, and you know, I I can't see them for who that for who that particular individual might be in that particular moment, right? So they might be maybe 70% of the way or 40% of the way to full-blown, you know, the monster that I've conjured. And that makes it harder for me to interact with them, to deal with them. So I avoid that. And yeah, I mean, you know, bad ideas are as old as time, right? There are way more bad ideas than good ones because it's easier to come up with bad ones. Um, And there are, there are bad ideas that are, you know, particularly consequential because they're attached to real intentions and real motivations that are genuine and shared by people. Um, and, you know, the ostracism and the kind of the auto cannibalism and, and the, you know, the, all the, all the strife and all the tension that we're dealing with is because there's a reality that's being responded to. And it's just that it's being responded to in, you know, ineffective, inefficient, sometimes boneheaded counterproductive ways. And I think that's the main problem. And the way that I see it is just that what we really need to do is figure out how to turn the temperature down and how to get through to these people who, who we disagree with in an open way, in a compassionate way, so that we can actually get somewhere. Because putting our fists up, you know, drawing swords and all that stuff, all that imagery is not going to work. It's not going to help because all we're doing is kind of reinforcing each other's caricatures of the other. You know, oh, see, I told you they were monsters. I told you we needed to fight them. Look at them. They have swords. Now we need to fight them. I told you. And that's what both of them are saying. And it's kind of like a, you know, it's a, a firing, like a, a firing circle or whatever you call it. So a circular it's firing a circular squad. firing squad. Yeah, yeah. Like that's the thing that we're doing because because everyone is so tense and everyone is so tentative and everyone is so just, you know, worried about the other when we can just say, okay, look, like, let's stop for a second. Just pause. Look, we both want basically the same things. That's that's my whole spiel is these things are coming from a shared goal and it's just manifesting itself in different ways based on 
a million different things, right? From experiences to temperament, psychology, and all these things. Um, so, I think that's, that's I where think. I think that's where we end up disagreeing. Mm -hmm. It's like we it's like we agree until we get to the where we all have a shared goal. And well, while there might be where, an individual, where you draw that, huh? It depends where well, you draw that line, right? Right. I I guess I feel like um, I've been I've always been the odd person out. So I grew up in the Northeast. Everybody was left leaning. I was not, you know, like some hardcore conservative or something like that. Um, I was more conservative than my parents, oddly. <laughs> um, but I just looked around at a lot of the kids I went to school with and went to college with. And I thought they were like hyper emotional react reactionary. They were burning Reagan on the, the quad and effigy and, you know, and I was so obsessively interested in history from a young age that I was that kid sitting there saying, yeah, but a lot of what you think, you know, just isn't true. And when I say no, I was reading primary sources, you know, I'm like reading, you know, not just Federalist papers, but like letters and diaries and things. I, I dove into all this kind of stuff from the Revolutionary War and on forward and was really like almost autistically obsessed with it. And so there you are, a teenager and a college student and you're hearing people say, well, we did this and we're bad. About it. And I'm like, yeah, but did you know about this? And, that? and nobody wanted to hear about it. And I, so I've been shouted down, made fun of shunned, ostracized, cast aside, had no friends pretty much my whole life. You know, I'd have my two friends or whatever, but, um, I've lived almost a lifetime being the person who had to speak very quietly about my opinions. Um, and what I learned from many, many years of attempting to reach people and attempting to show them facts and attempting to engage them in dialogue when they were at least the perceived majority where every place I went, they were the literal majority because, you know, you grew up in New York city, they were the literal and they still are majority. And there's something that happens to people when they either believe they're the majority point of view, or they know they are, they have a, like a hard candy shell. You know, they just don't feel the necessity to listen to you. Why should they? There's nothing to be gained from changing their mind. And at the same time, I was putting myself into positions that were, you know, quite vulnerable by even engaging with them because that would make it obvious I didn't agree. Right. So, but I kept doing it because I'm stubborn. Um, but that, so I learned kind of the hard way that not everybody wants what I want because I approached it just like that, just like Angela. I was like, but don't we all want the same thing? No, we don't. And what I realized pretty late, it was about graduate school. I realized that it wasn't just they wanted something different than I wanted in, a, in small ways. That I met people, a lot of people in the education field who explicitly wanted to fundamentally change the United States into a completely different kind of country. So they actively didn't want free speech anymore. They wanted speech regulation. They actively didn't want small government or even limited, forget small, they didn't want limited government. And even mo a lot of my Democrat friends in, in high school were still like the JFK kind where, you know, we really don't need government to be in charge of all, every aspect of our lives, right? Um, and so I now 
realize there are people, and I think that their numbers have grown exponentially ever since the schools started teaching Howard Zinn's version of history, which is the people's history of the United States, which is heavily negative towards the United States. He was actually a communist. And adding in lots of other communist thinkers, Marxist, you know, ideologues without counterbalancing them with anything else. You know, I mean, I'm not opposed to teaching Marxist ideas. I believe in the, you know, the heterodoxy of ideas. And I think especially with high school students, they should have that. But it got to the point where it was exclusive. Even when I was in college, it was exclusive. I had to go in search of other things. So how are you going to want what I want if you don't even understand what I want? If you don't have a frame of reference, you don't have a background. Many people haven't traveled. I've been very lucky. I've traveled all over the world. I traveled to the East Bloc countries when they still were under Soviet control. Um, I went to East Berlin, saw goose-stepping soldiers, you know, two feet from me. One of our students was arrested accidentally for, for accidentally trading something on the black market. He didn't realize he was buying on the black market. So I've I've lived that. And I when you when it sinks in that even though they look like you. And I don't mean like literally just saying, and we all are Americans and we, you know, live in the same country and they drive a car and live in a house and all that. They actually don't want what I want and think it would be a pretty good idea if we had a super powerful centralized government with, you know, universal single payer healthcare, you know, like all like a completely socialist country without all this icky representation. Right. I changed my view on how to engage with people. And I'm not going to tell you I have the way. Sorry. Oh, no. Well, uh, sorry to interject, but here's the thing is I don't disagree with what you're saying there. But for me, the question is, is why do they want that? Why do they want to fundamentally change the system? Why do they want it to be that system instead of this one? Why do they want (laughs) these policies? Why do they want more government? It's not because because they're terrible. because they don't understand. Sure, but it's not because they're terrible people who want to destroy the no. world, right? It's because no. they think it's it's because they th- and I know you don't think that, but what uh, the point I'm trying to get at is this is what I mean when I say we all want the same things is that they think that by making those things a reality, they will make the world better for everybody. I'm sure that that is what they would say if you ask them. I think this is better. I think that too many people are suffering the way we have it now. And I think the solution is to do it like this. Fewer people will suffer. That doesn't mean that they're right, but it means that you actually do want the same things. It's just that we have different different routes, different maps for getting there. And you could be wrong. I could be wrong. That we could all be wrong because, of course, there's a million ways to be wrong about it. But at least acknowledging that we have that same destination in the abstract is is the beginning of that connection that I'm talking about. It's the beginning of finding a way through and saying, okay, look, I get it. I get why this is important to you. I get why you think this is the thing that's going to lead us to a better place. Here is why I don't think that's going to happen if we do it the way you're doing it. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to get resistance. That doesn't mean that you're not going to get called terrible things. But at the very least, for me, what that does is it it shifts the conversation from us them language to we language now i'm saying how can we figure out how to get to this common destination you have this route i have this route how can we figure out how to get there together because 
I'm not going to kill you. You're not going to kill me. That's not a good idea. We need to figure this out together. So forcing me is a bad idea. Forcing you is a bad idea. What are we going to do? You know, that's, that's what I mean. No. And I, I, I agree with that. I mean, it's, I guess it's one of those things where when it, it, you know, when it, the rubber meets the road and you're facing people who are saying are using genocidal language. Um, like we have to eliminate whiteness and, you know, all the people who are like this, are, you know, what's wrong with the world. And you start lumping groups of people into giant groups and you start labeling those groups. And um, that makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. I'm also Jewish. So that informs that opinion. Um, it It's, uh, it's, it's very, very difficult to believe that some of the people, and again, I wouldn't say all, but some, and I would say some who are very high up in the movement to fundamentally change the country, if, if we're going to call it something other than woke, um, who really don't want all of us to be here when it's done. Now, does that mean they want us to literally die? I Let's say I don't think they much care. I think in the, it's kind of like they want what they want and they're perfectly content to do whatever needs to be done to the people who don't want that, that they would actually like to have the power to make that problem go away some kind of way, you know, as, as sort of cleanly and below the radar as possible. I don't think they want to roll out tanks, but I think that a lot of things we've been seeing in the last couple of years are those kind of ways. Um, when you marginalize people, when you categorize people, label people, um, attach negative virtue to people who make different choices, use language in, like I said, these kind of genocidal ways. I've seen it in Eastern Europe, I've seen, you know, in history and so forth. And I honestly don't know how to, I don't know how to engage those people. So what I've chosen to do instead, because I don't know that we have a lot of time to be perfectly honest with you, um, is I've chosen to try to capitalize on one of the features of the narcissistic personality or a person, let's just not the narcissistic personality, but the people who are drawn under their spell, codependents, people who kind of get drawn into the love bombing and then don't know how to get themselves out. So they're like, this is my identity now and I'm not really sure how to extricate myself. And when you go after them to rescue that, you know, to like you think you're rescuing them, you're like, let me show you and, and like, get away, you know, because they've been they've been made to believe that you're bad. Like you are a bad person. So instead, cause I've also had a drug addict in the family, instead of going straight on, like, don't use drugs, don't use drugs, don't use drugs, or let me talk to you and help you in this and that. One of the features is I'm going to focus on building up what I think we need to be to survive by we, I mean, people who want to preserve Western enlightenment culture and values and education and all those things. And I want to try to focus more of my energy on extolling those and talking about those and being excited about those and, and, um, not being bothered by them. Almost if I have to fake it, unapologetically speaking, my absolute truth, you know, just even if it's going to piss them off and they're going to hate me, it's like, yeah, I absolutely believe this. Like being so completely honest 
in the face of their threats and everything that it triggers in some people this thought of like, why aren't you afraid of me? I got this in college. Like, why are, why aren't you, why aren't you, you know, changing your opinion because I'm yelling at you. And I'm like, cause it doesn't matter. And I just kind of like act like I don't care. It hurts, but you pretend you don't care and you pretend like, all right, well that's you. And I disagree and whatever and go on your merry way and go over here and hope that the wondering of like, why aren't they afraid of us? Why aren't they afraid of me? will trigger that, you know, what am I missing? And the question mark in their own mind, is there something I don't know? Because I have actually had two friends in the last two years who were friends that I lost. You know, they kind of got sucked into all the stuff, but I knew they were really good and decent people, but they turned like super ugly. And I did exactly that. And I didn't let myself go after them. And I was like, see ya. I'm really sorry you feel that way, but I'm going to be over here doing my thing. And when certain things started to change, they questions, they came back to me and they're like, all right, I have a question for you. And then I received it. And then I was like, okay, you're coming to me now. I didn't turn them away. I didn't be like, oh, well, you don't want to talk to me. Then I was like, well, if you're asking me, let me tell you. And I'm happy to say they've kind of cut that part they've come over to the the this side of like reason again and it's really difficult for them because there's a kind of a withdrawal that they go through similar to like a drug withdrawal where they're so sorry for what they did to you they're sorry for things they said and it's difficult like it's a really difficult process so i do agree we need to be prepared to kind of be compassionate to people if they do want to kind of see the light. I'm definitely not for meanness and cutting people off and becoming like the other side. But I do think for reasons of growing your 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 best defense mechanism, I think for reason is to use reason. It's like go use it, go build, go do other things, build schools, build, you know, like make things to go to and then have the people over here kind of be like, they're not bothered. They're not doing what we want them to do. We're just, that's why I'm against apologies, forced apologies. I wish people wouldn't do them. Um, you know, I, I'm against um, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm against the, the, a lot of the trainings. I'm against all the things that we see people sort of caving and appeasing and doing. Because, And even if it's really soft, like, well, we're going to straddle the middle and do both sides. I'm 100% against that. I don't think there's a middle here. I think... And I'm not usually a two-side person, but I think when it comes to Western Enlightenment, humanistic values, and collectivism, you know, uh, the you know, what, what Jason Littlefield calls successor ideology, and you know, nihilism and this kind of stuff, tear it down. We can't we can't have anything good unless we throw out the whole the whole system. I don't I don't think there's a middle. So that's my approach, and it's maybe maybe a little different than yours, but that's, that's why I have that approach. If that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. I, I don't disagree with any of that really. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, I, I mean, maybe a lot of this is just kind of crossed wires and misperceptions of, of one another, but I, you know, I get, I get a lot the idea that I am advocating for lying down just taking it, you know, turn the other cheek sort of nonsense. Not at all. Um, anybody who thinks that I'm just, you know, sitting around being a punching bag for people is not paying attention. It's just that for me anyway, uh, 
it's very important how you choose to engage, how you choose to defy, and how you choose to um, push back. And I think that my my approach is to put compassion at the forefront. I'm going to push back on you with compassion. I'm going to tell you that I care about you as a human being and I care about what you care about, that I care about the things that matter to you. I, I They matter to me too. And I am just as passionate about fixing the world's problems as you are. And I'm going to put that right in their face as I disagree. Because leading with that kind of disarms a lot of it. Now, there are some people you're never going to get through to. Some people are just going to call me a white supremacist, right? No matter what color my skin is, no matter what I say, no matter what I do, no matter how often I decry racism, right? They're going to call it, they're going to call me these things anyway. Some people are too busy. They're not paying attention. They're not listening. Um, But I have had experiences where just by refusing to reflect their behavior back to them, I've, I've given them pause. And I've seen other people who had, you know, a different tactic, a different approach and have, were kind of, you know, I kind of coaxed them into doing it more my way. And I've seen them have more of an effect on people just by changing the approach. Um, So, you know, James Lindsay is the kind of specter hovering over this conversation because I think a lot of it is kind of me disagreeing with his approach uh, <laughs> to call it an approach to you know say it lightly, I disagree with it quite strongly. I think that he is doing way more harm than good at this point, at at least, if not always, um, because by becoming the kind of you know antagonist that everyone has in their mind, it's almost like you know they've conjured a dragon, and he's like, well, fuck it, I'm just going to be the dragon. I'm going to become the dragon. Well, now there's a dragon. There's actually a dragon now. And everyone's going to see, say, look, see, there, I told you there was a dragon. So we've been right all along. And it's just going to make them more fervent. It's just going to make them, you know, he, he's an accelerant is what I say. So there's that. We've been monopolizing him. I'm sorry about that. Uh, oh, no ahead, worries. Um, I was going to say pe- people do accuse you of taking things lying down a lot, Angel. Um, and yeah. I think what you need is like a scary face tattoo or you need to like start just eating buckets of whey protein, get like absolutely huge. I mean, so, uh, you know, it, I'm, I'm going, I'm going with the, with the more effective, but uh, longer term approach of erosion. I'm just going to be like the weather. I'm just going to keep relentlessly just being what I am. And eventually I'm going to smooth you into a beautiful stone. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff uh, what are your thoughts so far on um, on what Angel and uh, Dev have been saying? I have a ton of thoughts built up, but I'll try to highlight. Um, I, I think there's room for multiple approaches. I don't think people are pushing back as hard as they should be or need to to be effective. So I think one approach is being a little more assertive and aggressive, like on the front lines where this stuff is happening. Employers, teachers should be pushing back a little more. I also think, Angel, there's a lot of room for your approach. And I try to use it when I can. If I feel like someone honestly wants to discuss in good faith, it costs me nothing to take them at their word and make that attempt. I think the diplomacy and those kind of conversations where we found find mutual ground and values is also needed. 
And then I'm more with Deb, like the approach I'm mostly devoting my energy to is just creating alternatives. Like regardless of what happens with the wokeness or what they do, I want to make sure that there are alternatives that reflect my values that I have access to independent of the outcome of what happens with the culture war. So I think there's room for all three approaches and probably even more. Hmm. Um, so that's my thought on that. But one thing you said, and we've talked about this on Twitter, and this is a sticking point for me consistently with most people. You had you, you used the phrase systemic enterprise, um, systemic racism. I'm from the South. I'm from Louisiana. I understand individual racism. I don't right. understand systemic, like how a, a system which is impersonal and doesn't have a consciousness can be racist, unless you mean the aggregate of the individuals in the system. And even that seems an exaggeration. So what is systemic enterprise or this systemic racism well, that everyone seems to it, take for it, granted? It, if you don't mind, I want to uh, – I, I do want to talk about this. I promise I really do. Um, <laughs> but I, I worry it's it's going to take us completely off track from what we did want to talk about. I was going to try, try to save it for the end if that's okay. Do, do you have a – does anybody have an issue with that? No, it, it's fine to leave it to the end. I have no problem, but it, it's a barrier for me to conceptualize what we're talking about until it's clear. Right. Even so it, it may cause me to not be able to follow the conversation somewhat um, until we get to it. Angel, I'm, if, if you wouldn't mind, I would like to address this one with relation to education, if I could. Sure. Yeah, because go for it. I think my view is surprising to most people because I, I actually don't think that the other institutions in our country are systemically racist anymore. Um, there are maybe small vestiges in the justice system that need to be tweaked, but probably on a state-by-state -state basis. But I think the most systemically racist system in our country is the edu public education. And here's why I say that. Let me explain what I mean by systemic. It is a system, literally. It's a public education system that's paid for with, with tax dollars. Almost everything about it from its inception was done with racist intent. So, for example, when the public education system was first uh, created as a coast-to-coast, -coast, you know, mandatory thing, um, it was done. They did that because we had a lot of immigrants coming to this country from other countries, primarily Catholics. And the, uh, the sitting administration was very anti-Catholic. Actually, most people in power at that point in time were anti-Catholic. So it wasn't even white and black specifically. It was like anti-Catholic, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant versus Catholics from all kinds of parts of the world. And you also had freed slaves who were moving around the country and going to different places. And the thought was, we'll just take, you know, kind of kill two birds with one stone. We're going to assimilate and regulate and subdue and, you know, kind of keep people in their place. And this was explicitly stated. So there are writings you can go read where people were very proud of these views. They, they were, not, were not really trying to hide that this was going to be the way they would keep the, the general population of, you know, sort of the unwashed, if you will, um, in their proper place and not aspiring too much and not willing too much more than they, the powerful wanted them to have. So not just systemically racist in the sense of black and white, but also systemically classist, systemically um, xenophobic, all the things that we as Americans like to, you know, fight against. We, we, we don't stand for that. But we did. 
and we built a public education system explicitly for the purpose. It's why we chose the Prussian system from Germany. That was it was not so much for the the race and religion, but to keep people in almost militaristic subjugation to the state. So when it's when you have a system that is designed that way, and then the reforms over the years um, are superficial at best. And what I mean by that is that even with Brown v. Board of Education and even with desegregation, the efforts to desegregate themselves were force applied. So if you had a black community that had its neighborhood school and it was all black, it was technically segregated, but you had teachers from within the community and you had skin in the game, so to speak, you know, you could walk to school and all that. We had very high literacy and we had a growing black middle class um, forcing desegregation. It's one thing to say you may no longer bar someone from coming to your school. It's another thing to say, let's put these kids on buses and force them across town into a different zip code and have them go to this other school where, you know, the people don't really want them there because it's very sudden. You know, anytime you do something very fast and suddenly people are not exactly warmed up to it. Um, it, the, the people going don't really want it. The people having them come don't really want it. Lots of fighting, lots of trauma. I think people dug in on their original views. People don't like to be forced to do things, even if they're good things. And it, I think created a, almost a new wave of racism that was, I, I do believe on the downside. Um, people were starting to resent Jim Crow in the South. Like, stop making me refuse service to people. I want to make money. You know, stop making me not be friends with, date, marry, et cetera, these people. And that's what government was doing, was forced. So they picked that up in the schools. Like, you're going to be desegregated, but we're going to force you to do it. While at the same time, continuing to fund schools with district lines that were by zip codes and, you know, you can't desegregate neighborhoods that quickly where people are living in a mixed area. So because it was originally conceived as a segregated system, a racist system, et cetera, then trying to undo that, especially using force, just almost made it worse. And then the outcomes started to go down then. If you, again, if you look at the timeline, the achievement gap was really not what anything resembling today. It was very, very small. And in some places in urban areas, there were black students doing better, ironically, than white. The ability to learn to read, which was denied them in slavery, was like, I'm reading. You know, like, you can't stop me now. So you had schools in Baltimore, Walter Williams wrote about this, turning out PhDs and doctors and all kinds of people that were very high achieving while across town at the white school, they were, you know, not achieving at that level. So um, what happened? Well, the great society programs, we can we talk about that. It's a whole other topic, but that affected the school because the same ethos of, well, they're poor and it's because of, you know, we need to do these things. We need to help. We need to, so the curriculum started getting, you know, anything, anybody who wasn't doing well, it was assumed it was too hard. We're seeing that now again with critical race praxis. It's too difficult. We have to make it easier. Like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You get into about the eighties and they wanted to stop tracking students. We used to track students by ability. It's really difficult to teach multiple, multiple abilities in one classroom, but they did something really stupid when they were tracking, instead of just tracking abilities and letting the kids catch up and get supports and catch up, they created a hegemonic curriculum. So 
You kids who are going at pace, get Shakespeare. You kids who are not, get job applications. Well, that's kind of perpetuate the outcomes in the end of not only people not knowing as much of, of actual knowledge, you know, in terms of what, what you're teaching them. It's not just the pace they're going at, it's what they're actually learning, but it also perpetuates their outcomes of whether they're going to go to college and so forth. And so every time people, you know, on the inside of education and the government said, this is bad and it's getting worse. And, oh, they kept saying it was money. And every time they kept applying a reform, it seemed to treat the black students, brown students, whatever you want to call it, you know, not white students, as if they were like, you know, incapable, like less capable or, or, you know, less able to do. And just, we have to bring everything down. We have to bring everything down. And to me, that's a kind of racism as well. I think it's explicitly racist to look at a human being and assume that there's a disparity in the outcome that has anything to do with them. Okay. And while they'll give lip service to it's the environment and we have to create an inclusive environment and we have to do this. And it's like, but, but you're not really, because if you were, you would say to these little kindergartners, there is no reason you can't learn to read as well as, you know, the other kids. And we're going to challenge you just as much. And if you can't get there quite as fast because you don't have as many books in your house, we're going to give you books. We're going to give you a tutoring. We're going to give you books. We're going to surround you with all the same supports they have. We're not going to take these kids and say, slow down, go slower. Okay. That doesn't help these kids at all. And so as a teacher, I'm now looking at a system that is a hundred years old, pretty much exactly that has taken its original sort of you know, these people shouldn't learn and I'm going to these people can't learn. And now we've got it down to where, and we're so afraid they aren't going to be able to perform that we need to remove all the places you could achieve so they don't feel bad. And so we can hide the fact that we haven't actually been achieving anything for them. And I like, when I tell you it builds up a kind of rage in me, it's the understatement of the decade. Because again, I, I've taught kids, I taught in a school in West Philadelphia for my student teaching was 100% black. And I worked with a wonderful teacher. She was like 65 year old white woman. And you, she reminded me so, so much of um, Marva Collins. I don't know if you're familiar with Marva Collins. She was a black educator in Chicago who got fed up with what was going on, like really fed up and just pulled out and pulled a bunch of her most at-risk kids with her and started a little school. I encourage you to read about her if you don't know about her. She's brilliant. And she was teaching them the classics. She taught them all the classics, everything that, you know, she felt like she was taught when she was a kid by her dad, who was insistent that she get an excellent education. So he taught her. And they didn't pull the teachers union. Everybody said, you're crazy teaching Shakespeare to these little kids, these little urban kids. They, what do they can't do? We can't read Plato, blah, blah, blah. They mocked her. And they showed up one day for a tour with a bunch of other politicians and people want to take a look at this little school she created. And these little kids are reading, you know, Aristotle and they're having little philosophical conversations. It was multi-age classroom too. And off the charts performance from her school. And they mocked her and they derided her and they tried to, um, they, they tried to insinuate she was lying and manufactured, made them memorize, they were acting, you name it. Um, but she proved them wrong. She was offered secretary of education, um, pretty sure by Ronald Reagan, but I, I mean, I think two different presidents offered it to her and she said, no, she wanted to keep doing what she was doing. And what I don't understand 
is there you have this woman. She actually wrote a book, The Marva Collins Way. There it is. We know what ha has worked with the most at-risk kids you're ever going to find. Chicago, okay? Kids are still in that situation today, and we're not doing it. And I'm that person who goes, why aren't we doing it? You know, we're spending trillions of dollars on social emotional learning and psychoanalyzing these kids and telling them they're victims, which I personally think is a form of abuse to do to any child. But why aren't we just building a Marva Collins school in every urban area and saying, let's try it. Let's at least try it. Make it a choice. Make it a Marva Collins charter school. And anyone who wants to go there can go there. Okay. So. We have a couple different rabbit trails for options. Sorry. Um, but that's systemic racism to me as I see it. <laughs> I'm uh, I, I'll be, I'm very, very libertarian, not completely. So it, it was hard not to uh, not to cheer you on, especially when you use the word aspiring in the, in the podcast. You get bonus points for that. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to I wanted to take us um, back a little bit, especially because of what uh, Jeff brought up. And sort of narrow down what we're talking about with wokeness specifically um, that we don't like. So I, I kind of wanted to to go around the the room, so to speak, and ask everyone, what is your? It's 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 a weird question to ask. It sounds it sounds weird on my tongue. Um, but what is your favorite and your least favorite part of wokeness, or critical social justice? Anything in that sort of. Uh, loosely defined set of ideas hmm. but th that may help narrow down this conversation a little bit that's a good question i uh if i can jump in first go um, for it it's pretty easy to answer yeah i think uh, you know my favorite thing the thing that i think is good is that it's forcing us to have conversations about things that are difficult about things that are important about things that a lot of people didn't want to talk about before they just didn't want to. They were super uncomfortable mm -hmm. talking about it. You know, the the book White Fragility comes from a kind of kernel of truth that the minute race is brought up, plenty of people of a certain, you know, of a certain group uh, tense up. They freak out. They don't know how to have the conversation. I've seen it happen. I've watched people just go pale, paler, right? <laughs> and uh, not not know what to say, right? And that's not something, you know, I don't blame them for that, but it, it indicates to me an issue, right? We need to be able to talk about things. And that's, that's a good thing. A good thing is that now many, many of these topics are front and center and they're important and we should learn how to talk about them. And that's tied to the thing that I don't like, which is that it's, the conversation that is being, you know, facilitated is also being stunted and stifled because there's a dogmatism about how the conversation needs to be had, who gets to speak, why, and what they have to say, right? So, you know, there's a kind of shooting yourself in the foot thing. Like it's a great thing that we're bringing this forward. It's a great thing that many people are being made to grapple with these ideas in a way that they didn't want to before or just never did. It never occurred to them, right? But people are going too far and pushing and saying, no, now not only do you have to have this conversation, you have to have it this way. You have to say these things. You have to draw these conclusions or else. That's the problem. That's the part that really, really sucks. 
you know? And I think John McWhorter is one who said, you know, the idea is not to shut them up, you know, with the elect, he calls them, or, you know, the woke, whatever. Mm. The idea is just to get them to sit back down. You have a seat at the table, right? You get to say what you want to say, but other people do too. And what's happening right now is we're just letting them kind of take over the room. Um, that's what he, you know, his conception of it, that that's the way that he kind of frames it. And I think, I think that's pretty spot on. I think, you know, I want to hear from these people. I want to hear what their concerns are. I want to hear what their perspective is, you know, uh, just like Deb was saying, you know, Marxism, come on, I want to hear about it. Tell me all about it. I want to learn. I want to know what it is. I want to understand it. I want to understand your point of view. And then I want to disagree with you and I want to give you mine and I want you to be just as receptive as I am. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's the the kind of flip sides. It's like the same coin, but it's just the flip sides. I like it. What do you think, Jeff? I've been sitting here trying to, th- I, I don't think any, I, there's nothing I like about it at all. I think we were doing fine. We were on, we were on a good track and woke this came along and said everything, but I can't think of a single redeeming thing that I see in it. I, I, I think it's, it's taking us, to a level of mediocrity that we were moving away from. And it's, I think it's regressive. The thing I don't like about it, just right away on a personal level, the policing of language, the pronoun, don't tell me how to talk. Don't tell me what words to use. Don't tell me how to express myself. I'm autistic. I struggle enough to communicate as it is. I don't need that bar raised. And the authoritarianism, like I'm so anti-authoritarian. I don't like people telling me what to do or trying to control me or engineer me. And so I think wokeness contributes to all of that. I, I, that's that's the thing that comes to mind the most that I don't like. And I can't think of, maybe by the end of the podcast, if I think of something, I'll let you know. But so far, I can't come up with anything that I think is positive about it. Hey, man, that's fair. How about you, Deb? Um, well, I, you know, I would have answered the same way, except there are days, I will confess, that the favorite thing I have, I, the thing I like the best about it is it's hilariously funny if you let it be. I mean, it, it, it's dark, okay, for me to laugh. But um, maybe that's maybe that's part of why I have like a little soft spot for James's way because it does. They do seem like jesters, and it, they do seem clownish. I think we have reason and reality in our side. I get more angry, to be perfectly honest, with people who say they're opposed to these ideas who, um, you know, either don't laugh or don't speak very truthfully and clearly and, and, and consistently, um, we don't stick up for their own values. I get more angry at that than I do even at some of the people on that, on the other side, because I feel sorry for them. I do think some of them are, um, mentally ill, a lot of them actually. So, but I, I do think it's funny. Jeff has something to say. I did. I did think of after hearing you talk, it it's challenged me. It's confirmed me more in my liberal, humanistic, enlightenment values. And it's put me in touch with some wonderful people that I would have never met, but for the discovery that we share those values and just how important those values are. So in a way, it, it's a useful contrast to help me clarify my own values. So I can appreciate it for that. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Uh, it gives uh, you that's not too does, bad 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's it, it's not. But I mean, it's it's a little sad that you know, I, like in, in my case, I didn't expect to be having a YouTube channel or talking about any of this stuff. I thought by this point in my life, I'd be doing something very different than I'm doing. Um, and now I can't do anything because having stuck my neck out um, so vocally, um, I can't even get a job. <laughs> but um, which is annoying, not gonna lie. But I still don't think. I would do it differently. You know, I, my whole life growing up, like I said, I was that outsider and I spent so much time overseas. I lived in Austria. Um, I learned to speak German because I was so morbidly curious, like how could these people do this? How could this happen? So the period of history I spent the most time studying um, was the year of Hitler, that whole thing. And I went there and I lived there intentionally so I could see if I could understand, like, maybe if I live here and maybe if I, you know, meet people and speak to them, I'll, I'll understand. I actually did or learn some things that helped me understand. But um, I remember thinking at the time, if my day ever comes, you know, if I'm ever in a period of history where the time comes where you're challenged to either speak or shut up, I'm going to speak. I mean, I made myself that promise that I was not going to keep my mouth shut, no matter what was going to happen to me, that I was going to use my freedom early and often because I lived with a family there for a while. And I asked the woman, she was in her sixties at the time. So this is in 1985 or so. And I said, what, what happened? How did you, I just have to know like what happened to you? And she said, we are a people who like to be led. That was her answer to me. Now that might be somewhat unfair to or people or whatever, you know, the people, but she said, no, we went from a cut. We went, we had a Kaiser and then we had you know, this sort of feckless democratic government. And then we had another Kaiser and people kind of liked it. You know, that's like, that's what we're used to. We're used to being told what to do. And it was more comfortable. And she's, and I said, but did you know, did you know what was going on? And she said, at first we, we genuinely did not, but I'd be lying to tell you, we didn't quickly figure out what was going on. And I said, why? didn't people do anything? And she said, well, we were scared. We were just too scared. And I'd read about that. I'd read about even Jews who were saying, well, we'll just go along with this and surely this will be the worst they'll do. And then the next thing, and then the next thing. And so maybe it sounds over the top looking around now, but that's how I feel. I feel like I hope I'm exaggerating by saying that we might be in a period like that now, but I'm going to make damn sure that we're not like if I can open my mouth and say, I'd, I'd rather be wrong about that than be wrong the other way. If that makes sense. Um, so it has challenged me to, you know, have that moral courage. Martin Luther King spoke about that. Um, and that's just what I tell myself every day. Cause it's, it's, it's hard even reading the stuff I have to read every day. I have to read through curriculum materials. I have to read through all the stuff they're putting in the classroom right now. And it is the wokest, I mean, the only word I can use for it, you know, it's shorthand at this point. It's word salad. It's completely illogical. It is, it says nothing. And I know they're using this, not just to build billions of dollars out of hard, hardworking Americans who are struggling but to confuse and warp the minds of children. And I just can't stand it. So that's my least favorite thing. 
is they're destroying the minds of children. So for me, I think the the best part that I see um, in in all of the ideas coming out of the the woke left, critical social justice, however, how whatever we want to call it, I'm I'm still struggling with the terminology because um, th- there is a a sort of spectrum of those beliefs, and not everybody has the same one. Um, but the thing I appreciate is the vigilance concerning disparities. Um, because that is something that I think we need to fix. And to some extent, it seems I, people like to say that we're not concerned about the disparities that exist in the country. And I don't think that's true. The issue that I see is that it, we, we haven't been able to solve it yet. Um, and I think not being able to solve it gives people the perception that nobody cares at all. Um, and then that coupled with the political incentives for focusing on things to, you know, unite and beat the war drums rather than solve problems, um, I think makes it more difficult to solve those problems. And naturally, of course, it's also two completely different competing worldviews. Um, from my perspective, the thing we need to do is get government out of the picture. And from mm-hmm. their perspective, you know, we absolutely need more government. We can fix all the problems if we have more government. And I don't, I don't agree with that at all. Um, to me, the worst part that I see of social justice is reducing, um, and, and not everybody who's woke does this or does it to the same degree, but is reducing, um, every single person down to a couple, um, identity characteristics that they choose based on their ideology. Um, and I've even talked with people about this and it's funny, um, the resistance I see at incorporating other aspects of identity. I suggested homeschooling one time for identity. Um, like why, why can't I was homeschooled? Why can't that be part of my identity? Um, it, Cause it actually did shape me quite a bit. And uh, the response was sort of, well, you don't get to do that. Um, and we didn't really finish the conversation, so I don't know how it would have turned out, but I got the, I got the vibe that, you know, your, your identity is, um, decided by other people. You don't get to decide what that is. Um, and you will be judged based on that is, uh, that to me is the absolute worst part about it. Reducing everyone down to their, there's the, it's the race essentialism to, to borrow from Rufo. Um, and, uh, and at this point I'm kind of rambling. Um, no, but I mean, you're, you're right. It's, I think, it's so fundamental to me anyway, and to my ideas of liberalism, that you own your life, like you own yourself. That's your first most fundamental right is that this is yours, <laughs> you know, it's nobody else's. And I, I kind of wonder, when did that change? Because I always thought that people who were liberal, if you will, that that was like the, at least the core belief, like the core belief was that authoritarians from either direction, you know, anybody who is going to come and tell you how to live and what to think and even what to, how to dress and you know, who to worship, all this kind of stuff. That was just fundamentally un-American and wrong. That's what I believed. It's why I fought back against leftists in college because they wanted to do the same thing. This is the way to think. This is what I'm like, no, I don't, I'm me. I get to do what I want. As long as I'm not messing with you, non-aggression principle, right? You know, you do your thing. I'll do my thing. We're all good. Right. Um, 
And somewhere along the line, that seemed to change. And I don't know how we fix. You talk about the problems we haven't fixed. I don't know how you can even approach fixing problems if you're if your operating premise is that other people have or begin their life as an infant obligated to others. And then you don't have a clear idea of who those others are. Who are the magical others? Who are these, these philosopher kings or saints or, you know, holy people or whoever who's going to decide the rules and the right ways and the who wins, who loses, all that kind of stuff. I, I don't think you can begin to work together with people to solve problems when you you're telling them right out of the gate they they come in with baggage that you decide and you decide what it is or someone else decides i think that puts up a wall like that immediately puts up a wall between people going you know um which is kind of natural human beings i don't think well maybe they do that lady said we like to be led maybe i'm just weird i don't I think it depends. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think the one of the biggest issues, and Andrew, you touched on it, Deb, you touched on it, is that if we don't understand the nature of the problem, the actual nature of the problem, we're never going to solve it. And I think that, you know, so much of our issue is people thinking or people being absolutely certain that the problem is univariate. There is just this one thing that if we just fix that, it'll fix everything, right? On on that one side, it's racism is that one thing or white supremacy is that one thing. If we just eliminate white supremacy, the problem will disappear. These disparities will disappear, right? It's way more complicated than that. And, you know, on a similar token, right? You know, all we have to do is get rid of government. And that'll fix everything. Or all we have to do is more government, put more government. That's going to fix everything, right? That I think that is the biggest issue is just the way that we default to, oh, the one thing standing in the way is this. And I'm going to rail against that with all my might. And then after the war is over, everything will settle and be beautiful. And the world has right. never been that simple. Things mm-hmm. are always more complicated than that. We need some of this and we need some of that. And yes, that's part of the problem, but there's also this, there's also this, and there's also this. And, you know, that that's, uh, again, getting back to my approach, my approach is always to, to turn the temperature down so that we can actually say these things. Um, I think your because, approach works really, really well in person. Mm. Um, you know, like we, somebody said earlier, I don't know if it was Jeff or somebody, that you, they're different approaches, maybe for different venues, different types of people, you know, that there might be room for multiple approaches, et cetera. And I think certainly like if, if I had to go face to face with people, I would want you talking, you know what I mean? I would want you being the person in the room to like lead the conversation and stuff because you're just whole, your whole demeanor and your the way you come across. I think it's, it, it, it is disarming. You know, I think it, it would help people who are, willing to have that conversation, be able to have that conversation. Whereas I'm just not, (laughs) it's just not part of my makeup. Um, Well, I don't know. know. I don't think so because so far I've agreed with it with basically everything you've said and the way you've said it, you know? Yeah. But I mean, we might be do okay, like together, but I'd still want you to lead. Like I'd like be like, you go first. Cause you know, well, no, I mean, 
you know the way that the way that you described um, the education system and the, the problems with it, I was nodding along. I was like, yeah, that's that sounds. You know, I'm not a scholar. I'm not super educated on this, but that sounds very, very, very much like what my understanding is. And right. and and you know, it's so ironic because it's like the one system that really is systemically racist. And then we well, talk about funny. you. Yeah. It's funny because what I was going to say was, you know, the argument for systemic racism in other areas will probably, it would probably be a kind of Mad Libs of what you said. Just switch out the nouns to, to be, you know, if, if we're talking about criminal justice or if we're talking about, you know, public housing right. or whatever, uh, right. you can probably just switch, switch out the, the names and the nouns and things. And it'll, it'll basically be right. the same thing because there's, the point that you were making was that if something is designed a certain way and it starts chugging along, it's going to be a while before, you know, reprogramming it will, will reverberate, you know, in, in a different right. way. It's kind of, you know, you're waiting for echoes to come back. Right. And if you change what you're saying, it's going to be a bit before the echoes start to echo what you're saying now. Right. It's kind of the that other irony is I actually think it would be easier to fix the education situation than to fix the justice system. And the reason I say that is that sure, yeah. government really is the problem. There's no, you don't have to have government involved in education. That's like we do, but doesn't mean we have to real choice would be eliminating the compulsory nature of it, returning the dollars to the parents. Even if you do it in a form of like, you know, you, you declare under taxes that you spent this, whatever, you know, whatever you do, you can even have a local public option that the local people decide to fund and do, but I don't think that needs to be this big, huge system, but the justice system's kind of the justice system. Like it would be really difficult given the way our constitution is set up to eliminate the, that it is a system that is run by government because it's like right. literally a branch of government. Um, and in yeah. that's, yeah. And so in that sense, I think we do have to take a much more targeted approach. That's why I mentioned different states. Like you'll have um, minimum sentences in one state that are like obviously really onerous, right? They have other states that doesn't have that. They don't have that. They've democratically decided we're not going to do that. And you'll see they don't have the same disparities, which is how federalism is supposed to work. And what would be great is if we weren't having these you know, false dichotomy conversations of it's all white supremacy or no systemic racism doesn't exist at all. Like if we could say, well, you know, what's really the problem? The problem is this disparity in whatever. Hey, you know, this state is doing that and it, it actually worked. They're still punishing bad criminals and they're still getting people off the street and so forth, but you're not ending up with this, this weird outcome. So, but we can't even have that conversation, like you said, because of this false, you know, um, there has to be an all or nothing approach to it with education. Ironically, I think there is a little bit of a, if you, if you dismantled the whole thing and just parents know, like you have kids. And like I said, I think it wouldn't be all at once. A guy wrote an article saying we would have to do it in a staged phase of like each grade would fall off. He, he wrote about an article out in California, I think about a week ago, I'll see if I can find it and post it. But he actually uh, came up with a staged phase out of the government monopoly on it. And then the dollars would, you know, if you're still doing it by property taxes, which I think should be phased out also, but for a time, return the dollars to the kids, have the schools start to build up and so forth. So you, it would take a while. It'd probably take about 
15 years or so to really work its way out, but it's doable. It's absolutely doable. And there are people who've talked about it, but if you try to raise that, they're like, what do you mean? You're not going to have school. And you're like, when did I say that? I just said, you're not going to have a government monopoly on school. Yeah. Yeah. So Uh, I think it's probably outside the scope of this conversation and I'm not, yeah, I'm not very educated on it, but, but I, you know, I'm willing to hear out the plan because, you know, even before this current issue of what's being taught in schools, I was, I've had trepidation about, you know, my future children having to go through the school system, right? Like, I don't want to put them through private school because I don't, you know, I don't want that sort of thing going on. There are problems with that. But then the public school system, there are problems with that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean. And the definitely- sad part is that you're, you're, you're hearing, and I get where you're coming from. You're saying, you're here, you're saying, I don't want to put them in private school, but it's not because it's private. It's because of all that private school is right right now. Yeah. I mean, and, it's, and- it's about, it's about, you know, the, the way that it is. And there's kind of, you know, I just right. keep thinking back to, you know, Paul McCartney sent his kids to regular school and, you know, that when they asked him about it, he said, I didn't want my kids looking at the mailman, like, you know, who is this peasant? You know, and and that was one that was one way that he wanted to get around that was they're right. going to go to school like regular kids with all the other regular mm-hmm. kids just because they're my kid doesn't mean anything. Um, right. So there's a little bit of that for me, um, but yeah, I mean the thing the thing though that I would be concerned about, and you know this is just me spitballing on this idea, but the thing that I would be concerned about is, you know, there has to be some kind of baseline, some kind of standard. And someone needs to be in charge of ensuring that standard, right? Because we, we have to make sure that schools are teaching kids up to a certain level, certain things. Like we have to agree on what those things are. We have to agree on what what we would call, you know, a kid who graduates high school, we have to agree on what standard this kid must be able to meet in order to do that, in order to be called Or at least uh, agree on some assessments that the people- Yeah, I mean, whatever. Be- they, have to, they have to have, you know, this general knowledge set- they have to have this general capacity because that's the point of educating them. We want we want educated, capable, creative, um, you know, entrepreneurial citizens. That's what we're trying to do here. So then, right. you know, we're inevitably we're inevitably going to get to some kind of standard right. that we need to agree on. All of us we need to agree on it because you know, just because somebody lives in California and I live in New York doesn't mean that we should be educated at different levels, right? Like, right. I, I need to be able to trust that some random person of a certain age knows a certain sort of, you know, general things, right? We need to, we need to be able to do that in order for society to work. So that's well, what like I would you be said, it's about. probably, it's probably outside the scope of, of this conversation. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to talk to you further about that because I have a lot of ideas, but yeah, as far I mean, as it's the, interesting for sure. Yeah. But I was just trying to respond to what you said about how the univariant, you know, like the, we can't really solve problems because of that. And I think that that's what I meant was I think, we we do get stuck in that in that mindset and um um i i think a lot of it is because it's tied to identity um which is what andrew was talking about that once you tell someone they're a bundle of identities that are judged by others or assigned by others um and you get them convinced of that especially at a young age they don't know who they are without the group and that's the that's really a you know, a huge problem because if 
they need to, whether it's for their own self-preservation or because, you know, uh, the ideas are just terrible, step away from the group. It's almost like killing themselves. Um, it has a similar effect on their psychology that they feel unmoored. And that's why, that's why I compared it to cults, because one of the things that cults do is they separate you from yourself, your core self. Um, some people call it, you know, your spirituality, some people call it your soul. Some people, it depends where you're coming from, but this whole movement is lacking any introspection. It's lacking grace. It's lacking, um, all the things I think that ultimately make us truly human. And I'm not a religious person. I'm just saying you have an inner life. You have an inner, you have an inner voice, you have a conscience, and that is a yeah. big part of what makes us human. And when you have people coming in and taking you at six years of age and doing things that whether they intend to or not are actually designed to separate you from that so that you can be attached to the group, um, usually for political purposes, it's usually for political purposes or ideological purposes, um, they've killed something in you. And they've rendered you disabled. And the earlier they do it, the more likely it is to be permanent. And so that's kind of my thought on that. I did forget to say, I didn't realize how late it was. I do have to go in like five minutes. Um, so I'm, if that's oh, no. okay. Is that bad? Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> okay. we, we can't really stop you. So Okay, I'm sorry. Um, I just have to be somewhere at eight o'clock. So I have uh, to. Yeah. See the problem, the problem with libertarianism, I can't do anything to stop you. You're yep. free um, to go. <laughs> I know, but I didn't, I, I feel bad because I mean, I could talk to you guys for longer or whatever, but, um, I no, just, no, not I, at all. I, I well, we could always do it again. And Jeff, yeah, I want to hear sure. more from you, man. Deb, I got a lot out of hearing you today. I really oh, related well, to thanks. much of what you said. <laughs> so Deb, if, um, if you'd like to come back, I'd love to do a part two. And sure. um, next time, um, it's not that rabbit trails are bad, but with four people, that's a lot of rabbit trails. So next time what I'll do is I'll come up with a plan and try to yeah. share it with everybody um, so that you kind of know um, you kind of know where we're headed. Um, and, th and this is for everybody, not just you. I'm terrible with rabbit trails. I'm terrible when I do my podcasts about going way off topic. Um, so please don't feel like I'm, I'm pointing fingers at you. Um, yeah. um, but I, I want to, some, some of the stuff I wanted to talk about was how do we do what Jeff said is incorporate all of those tactics, um, all of those strategies and all these different fronts we're dealing with woke ideas and, um, what's the most effective way to go about doing that. And then I wanted to talk about from that perspective of like, what's the, is there a moral way to do it? Um, especially when all of us probably have different moral frameworks. I thought that'd be an interesting conversation. And then is there, what do we think is the most effective way to do it? Cause that's honestly what concerns me the most. Not that, you know, I'm want to go do something completely immoral to, to, you know, quote unquote, win for my side. Um, but more that I, I feel like um, one of the things we, we miss out in conversations a lot right now is people are so freaked out about wokeness. They, we feel like we have to fight back any way we can. And then if you, if you question that it's viewed as, well, you're, you must not want to fight wokeness the way I do. Um, and, and that's typically the, whenever I question tactics, that's the number one thing. Um, I want to say Carolyn Borisenko did this to me one time. Um, was, it was immediately suggest that I don't know what the threat is. Um, Sounds familiar, right? 
It, it does sound familiar, but um, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I think we sh- we should definitely talk about that. And I, I kind of want to talk about this with everybody I can, um, because I feel like we're the the threat is so serious. I feel like yeah. if wokeness, it if certain ideas like race essentialism um, and what I consider uh, neo racism um, don't destroy us in and of themselves, the fight over those issues will. Um, between the between the left and the right. Um, so I really want to do everything I can to encourage people to to find out and then encourage people to fight in the, fight um, in the most effective way possible on yeah, those multiple yeah. fronts. I will warn you guys that um, this little soft demeanor goes away completely when I feel like people are giving aid and quarter to overreaching government, like literally. I'm not saying, you know, it all has to go away. We have to be anarchy. But when I see people, um, you know, making it okay for government to violate the constitution or somehow explaining that away, the absolute meanest side of me comes out. So you'll see like a completely different person just warning you. Like in case you ever see it out on the internet somewhere, that's probably what instigated it is that I felt like somebody, uh, you know, soft pedaled a response, for example, to a certain attorney general about a certain activation of the FBI against parents and things like that. You're not going to see me talking all sweet. That's another one we need to, we need to touch on. Yeah. So, but I, I, that wasn't the topic of tonight, so that's why I didn't bring it up. But I just, in case in the next couple of days you happen to see a video of me and you're like, that's the same girl <laughs> we talked to on the podcast. She was so nice. And then, you know, it's like, yeah, I can be, I can, I can be a lot less than nice if I'm set off that way. So, but I do have to go. Thank you for inviting me, though. Absolutely. I appreciate it. And, and yeah, I hope we can, I I can get you all to come back for a part two. And uh, oh, absolutely, definitely. I, I have a quick question for Angel before we go. You you said you don't use the word woke, and I really like your line of thinking on that. What? How do you communicate that? What What do you use in conversation instead of woke? If I have to use it, I'll put it in scare quotes, just to just to indicate that it's it's an ineffective or imprecise term, and that. You know, not everyone's going to fall into the definition, whatever the definition ends up being, right? There's so much of a mess there. So scare quotes works a little bit, but generally I I would rather be specific to whatever the idea at hand is that I'm addressing. So if it's, you know, a particular, whatever the particular argument is, that's what I'm going to focus on. And I'm not going to bother calling it woke or you know, myself anti-woke or any of that stuff. Cause I feel like that's noise. I feel like the minute you do that, people have their preconceived notions and they just go off into their own corners and fight their own little battles with their own holograms of whatever the that thing makes is. sense. Like labels. You know? Yeah. That yeah. Makes sense. yeah. It just it doesn't work. Stereotyping to you on our, yeah, on our just, side. so I'm going to bound more to, attention right? to that and play around with it and see what I can come up with. Yeah. Zoom in, right, zoom in closer. You. Just focus on the idea. Yeah. Thank you guys. I really appreciate it. All right. How do I, what do I do? I just close the window or is there a way to exit um, that's more elegant?